0: Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grambacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Brian Yachman. Brian, are you ready to do this? Absolutely. Excellent. Let's do this. Brian is the president and chief investment officer of YCG Investments, a firm that manages over a billion dollars. I'm excited to have you on. Brian, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do.
1: Well, I am uh, I'm, I live in Austin, Texas, married, have uh, six children, and uh, what I do for a living is people take their hard-earned savings, they give it to me to manage, and I invest it for the long haul to, to help them uh, protect and grow and compound that wealth.
0: Nice. Appreciate that. So six kids. I've got two, and everybody told me about how when you go from one to two, it's twice as hard. Is it, in fact, six times as hard, Brian?
1: <laughs> I think there's a, a diminishing curve there. So I think <laughs> two to three, you know, man-to-man to zone defense was a little bit tougher. Uh, yes. But uh, once you're on zone defense at three, I actually I don't think there's much of a difference from three to four or five or six.
0: Okay. Plus so, they get
1: helpful. You know, they get more helpful with age.
0: That's a good point. So is is, is six the number or?
1: Well, when we got married, my wife said she wanted to have six and adopt two. Ah. So we are, we've accomplished the first goal and working towards the second.
0: All right. Well, very cool. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So you have been at this for a good little while and I was, we're going to dig into, um, your process for investing and all that good stuff. Um, I, I, was was writing down my 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 questions and I wrote down investment philosophy process approach strategy do you have a, a a a term that you use to describe what it is that 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 you do
1: um yeah i think all of those work okay. <laughs> whichever it, one's your favorite
0: okay fair enough so so in 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 today's very very dynamic world um, of information everywhere how how have you developed, and has it changed over time, your, your investment philosophy?
1: Uh, yeah, so I, I think um, the, the main thing is, is that when you're developing a strategy, you don't want just to earn great returns, but you want to make sure that you do so without taking excessive risk. You want to make sure that you're, you have a strategy that um, is repeatable um, and, and something that you feel confident you can count on. And so uh, I I think that in order for that to be the case, one of the main things is that people talk about how when strategies get developed and people figure out an edge, that that can get arbitraged away. But one of the things that doesn't get arbitraged away is behavioral advantages, um, where what I mean by this is that human nature, investors on average want to get rich quick and they're overconfident in their ability to do so and, and picking the right stocks that will do that for them. And so it leads in general to this uh, overarching overpricing for riskier businesses and an underpricing or undervalued uh, for the the more dominant, boring, stable, uh, predictable businesses. And so we uh, have found that there's there's just great value in and fishing in a pond that stacks the odds in your favor by investing among very high quality businesses. Um, now having said that, uh, then the question becomes, what is it that you really are focused on? Um, and we're, we're focused on uh, pre- predominantly uh, businesses that possess pricing power and have a long runway to continue to reinvest with that pricing power. And you know, I could go on a long time about what I mean by that. Um, I, <laughs> I, I don't know how detailed you'd like me to get, but w- what I would say is, like, let me um, step back for a second yeah. here. So, <clears throat> so I say we invest in a, a collection of global champions with enduring pricing power. Okay. And the key point I would make is that finding them is very rare. So Competition and innovation, naturally what it does is someone starts making a lot of money, then there's competition that comes in and innovation to find a way to do it better, faster, cheaper. And it drives down the real prices for nearly every industry and nearly every business. And so it squeezes profitability until there's no more excess returns left over for the investor. So we're looking to invest in the very few businesses that have the ability to charge a premium to their competitor's offerings, even if they were to offer a virtually identical product or service, because there's something unique about their their, their business or their value proposition. Hmm. And most often that's among businesses that have some form of like global network economics, uh, because the value of a network scales exponentially as that network grows. Um, so I think what's probably helpful is to give you some examples.
0: Yeah, that'd be great.
1: Um, so, for example, let's say um, you you're, you're interested. You're in the market for a very expensive handbag. Mm-hmm. Notoriously known would be Hermes and a Birkin bag. Okay. A, a Birkin bag can go for over ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars. There's very ex- exclusivity here. You have to spend a lot of money, show loyalty, to even get on a waiting list, and then you wait for two years, and you finally get to be able to buy this this bag.
0: Good for them. What's
1: amazing to me, <laughs> can, yeah, can you imagine now? Take that same artist, that same uh, craftsman, out of an Hermes shop, and have them build an identical bag. But it's not the Hermes Birkin bag. It's obvious that that bag would sell at a massive discount. And so the question is, why is it that Hermes is able to sell a virtually identical product at at a massive premium? And the answer is because there's this global network that it's a well understood, it's like a global language that that is a status symbol that that uh, signifies, hey, I'm valuable, I'm worth partnering with, whatever it may be. And so if you were to compare the, the, the charts of say, the pricing of a Birkin bag versus the charts of a handbag sold in Walmart, a handbag at Walmart has been driven down. Yes, there's been inflation and the bags have gotten more expensive over time, but after you adjust for inflation, they're far cheaper today than they've ever been. Whereas a Birkin bag would, is costing enormously you – know, it's been compounding at a rate faster than inflation for decades. So, so the other point to make here is that whereas most businesses are being forced to drive down their prices over time, what's beautiful about Hermes, a company like Hermes and other luxury, uh, globally recognized luxury status symbols – like Louis Vuitton or Cartier, is that in order for them to act as a good status filter, they need to continue to be costly to obtain. And because global wealth continues to rise in the world, they have to continue to raise their prices at least in line with the rise of global wealth. And so it it has built-in pricing power. It allows it to fend off that, that competition because of that global language network, that global belief network, if you will.
0: Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Interesting. Are, obviously, we, we, we mentioned uh, or you mentioned Hermes, Cartier, uh, Louis Vuitton. Are, are there other industries that, that or, or can you find a global champion in most every industry? I guess that's what you're trying to do. <laughs>
1: Yes, there's definitely other industries that that we're looking at, but I will say there's also industries we tend to avoid. So commodities, for example, are in secular decline. Commodity prices are continually getting cheaper after you adjust for inflation, whether that's because we come up with alternative solutions or if we're continuing to use the same solution, we may come up with better, faster ways to extract it or so that you need to use less of it. And so there's this pressure, downward pressure on the price over time. Um, we're looking for industries where they're remaining stable as a percentage of GDP or perhaps even growing as a percentage of GDP. Um, So another example, probably one of my favorite businesses, um, because it it really checks off many of the boxes, is a company called Moody's. Um, So Moody's, is they they rate bonds. Uh, If you're an investor in in fixed income, you're going to be using Moody's and S&P and Fitch as ways to help you understand the ratings on these uh, bonds that you're buying. And so it's become, again, a language, a global language that people understand the Moody's rating system. What's amazing is if you want to have Moody's rate your debt, it costs about 7 basis points, that means 0.07%, and it will, you will make, you'll save, I should say, about 30 basis points. So you pay 7 to save 30. Hmm. So it's a huge value proposition. Some people have tried to, rate, uh, do, uh, some people have tried to issue bonds without, the, uh, with, without using Moody's or S&P, and they found that they ended up needing to pay that extra price. So it seems like a no-brainer that people would just pay for that. Well, the, if you were to come along and offer an identical product, again, that's virtually identical in every way, hey, I'll come and I'll rate your bonds as well, the reality is, is it's not the language in the capital markets. You could say, I'll charge you five basis points, right. and, and they wouldn't be interested. You can say, I'll pay you to let me rate your bonds, <laughs> and they don't want to accept your business. Furthermore, the people who are charged with getting their bonds rated, if you were hired by a company to say, hey, go get, issue some debt, and you're an employee acting on behalf of owners, there's really no incentive for you to take the risk to go to a competitor and potentially lose your job if it doesn't work out well versus just, hey, take the conventional status quo route. And so that's what gave the birth of that, uh, a- that uh, aphorism, you never get fired for hiring IBM. Yeah. So a similar thing here. Um, and then you've got this long built-in growth forever because as businesses continue to, uh, as there's more business being conducted in the world, there will be more businesses that want to issue debt. And as they issue debt, they're going to need more bond ratings on it. And so Moody essentially acts as a toll taker on GDP and and has this built-in growth. But because they're also taking share, the capital markets are taking more share from local banking, then that also means they should grow faster than GDP over time. So we see a very difficult to disrupt business with pricing power they could raise their prices and people still would want to purchase because the value proposition is there and as that global network grows it further enhances the value of that of that network and then there's that built-in growth with gdp for for many decades to come
0: the, um, I, <clears throat> I hate to be casual with my language but that sounds kinda like a racket <laughs> <laughs> Particularly well, after the financial collapse, and they obviously did such a wonderful job of of evaluating credit default swaps and, and mortgage-backed securities and all that stuff, yet they are, I think, describing them as a toll-taker is a perfect way to describe Moody's.
1: I agree that there is something to be said about that. Um, at the same time, the reason that that's happening is because there is inherently value to that network. And so the question, is there value or is there not? Um, The the danger is, to your point, is the value of the network so strong that you you act in like a monopoly sort of way where you don't take good care of innovating your product and making it better uh, for the consumers and the users over time. But it's a it's a network effect that's alive and well, and there is true value that that is apparent in the capital markets that say, hey, this is valuable, and that's why that that exists. So, um, you know, a lot of our businesses act that way, but there but there's value to them. Another example would be like Mastercard and Visa. Here is the most talk about a global champion. I mean, they have billions of users, right. and. There, it's a two sided network where if, if I want to know where's my trusted, what's my trusted information filter, because all of these things act as either like an information filter or a people filter. Mm-hmm. So the luxury products were like people filters, and this isn't an information filter. If I want a trusted, secure way, efficient, that I can go around the globe and transact business with MasterCard or Visa, ex China, that, that's going to be through the MasterCard or Visa network. And so, it, it cost businesses, they're a very small percentage of the actual cost, but the value of that network is incredibly powerful and difficult to disrupt. Because in order to disrupt, you have to get all of both the merchants and the consumers to shift over and potentially the, the banks as well. So there's all these parties involved, but the value of that network is incredible. And so they can maintain their pricing as a percentage of GDP. And as GDP continues to grow, they again act as a toll taker on that growth in GDP. Um, I mean, this this is the key with a lot of the businesses we own. I mean, another small one, being a global champion does not mean it has to be a huge business. Right. Um, Copart is an auto salvage company. And if you are an insurance company, if you're if you have cars that are totaled, and you're going to run them through an auction to salvage off the remaining value, you're likely putting it through a Copart auction. You could offer an identical service where you say, I will have a website and it's going to be identical to Copart, and yet there is no way that you can get to automatically move the the buyers and the sellers of these vehicles over to that competing auction. And so they're able to maintain their pricing power. And as... You know, there's multiple things that, have, that drive uh, how much how many vehicles go through the auction. But ultimately, it's the volume of the vehicles going through, and um, and then they take a, a percentage of that over time. And, oh. and then now they're expanding and growing into international markets as well as the incumbent, because there's already people in international markets utilizing um, the markets the, the auctions in the U.S. So then they come into other auctions and. Uh, in other international markets and immediately establish a presence. Um, and one more thing that's interesting about them is as you buy up junkyards, there's this not-in-my-backyard principle where people don't want to... If you're a you know, local uh, city government, you don't want to have multiple salvage yards all over your city. <laughs> right. You say, man, we've already got one, that's enough. Mm-hmm. And so as they've developed the largest network it not only brings down their costs, but it's difficult for people to compete and get approval to continue to build out more salvage yards. Um, So it makes it a very powerful business over time.
0: Yeah, those are excellent examples. And you're right. I think we would have had a hard time uh, just articulating and describing exactly what pricing power really meant. But uh, Hermes, Moody's, MasterCard Visa, Copart, those are those are excellent examples of that. I love it. Well, Brian Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them?
1: Well, I think uh, the huge tip I would make is uh, first of all, if you're going to get, if you're not invested already, you want to start now. Um, the earlier you start, the better it is, and it's not just because of the miracle of compound interest. Well, that, that is why, but people think about start early, you make a lot more later. But consider just hypothetically. If you save a few dollars, I, I just ran a hypothetical number uh, before this. If you save five fifty dollars a day, or $100,000 over 50 years, you'll end up with $2.3 million. If you save, uh, if you say I'm going to wait to the last 10 years to save, you need to save $400 a day, or one and a half million dollars, to end up with the same $2.3 million. In other words, you could have spent another $1.4 million dollars over your lifetime if you chose to start early. I think that would be my number one tip is make sure you're starting to get invested now and early. But for those that are already involved, it would be to, to fish in the ponds of high quality. Too many people um, are, are, allow their emotions to, to take them and they, get, they start market timing and they actually shoot themselves in the foot, whereas they're much better off investing in, in dominant businesses that will last for many years to come and just patiently wait for that wealth to accumulate
0: like that is great stuff that definitely gets come on come on Brian thank you so much for coming on where can savage nation learn more about you
1: uh, either one of our websites so we have um, for separately managed accounts www.ycginvestments.com and for the mutual fund uh, with a much smaller uh, a much lower minimum www.ycgfunds.com and uh, both have a wealth of information that would help people To really learn much more about um, how we think and and how how to invest in a way that we think is just a very superior way to to earn high risk adjusted returns over time
0: perfect well savage nation if you enjoyed this as much as i did show brian your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas go to ycgfunds.com learn about brian and the firm and There is a ton of information and research and white papers on the site detailing a lot of the things we talked about today. So thank you again, Brian.
1: And thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together.